my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, six years after the EU referendum, is Brexit finally over? The Tories lost two recent by-elections in Leave voting seats, one in the Devon seat of Tiverton and Honiton to the Lib Dems, the other in Wakefield to Labour. This suggests that for many voters... If Brexit isn't quite an irrelevance, it is no longer the number one issue. We'll be talking shortly to Sam Bright, the Byline Times investigations editor. And we'll be looking later at the economic data, which suggests that the impact of Brexit won't go away in a hurry, even if it is now much harder for the Conservatives to weaponise it against their opponents. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our rather wonderful monthly newspaper. We can report without fear or favour because we don't have to dance to the tune of a wealthy proprietor. Our funding comes from ordinary readers who take out subscriptions to the Byline Times. So please subscribe if you can. You get details of how to subscribe on our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already taken out a subscription, thank you. To Sam Bright now. And Sam, in the latest online Byline Times, you're suggesting that the Wakefield by-election in particular marks the end of an era. Why? It does. I mean, I think it marks the fact that Brexit is no longer this binding force for the uh, Conservative Electoral Coalition. Obviously, in 2016, uh, Vote Leave won that won that referendum, and then Boris Johnson, who led the campaign, went on to take the mantle of the Conservative throne in 2019. And lots of those seats that had voted in favour of Leave in 2016 sort of hopped on the Boris bandwagon, so to speak, and um, and lots of those seats in, in the so-called Red Wall flipped from Labour to the Conservatives for the first time in decades. Now, Wakefield has been solidly Labour, or it had been, from 1932 until 2019 when it flipped under this uh, vote-leave wave uh, to Boris Johnson's um, party. Um, but obviously... Um, Labour, Labour won it back this time um, quite comfortably by 18 points. Um, so I really think that this shows that Brexit is no longer the force, the potent force that kept lots of these red seat, red wall seats or won lots of these red wall seats uh, for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives in, in 2019. And partly Boris Johnson is trying to revive the issue of Brexit desperately in an attempt to bind these voters to his cause again. Um, but he's also desperately trying to find other ways um, of cohering these socially conservative voters around the conservative cause. And it seems to be, it seems to be failing. And Labour, Labour looks like it, it's going to win um, a host more of these red wall seats um, uh, at the next election. Tiverton and Honiton is interesting as well in Devon because, of course, the Lib Dems are of the mainstream parties in England, the only avowedly rejoin party and Tiverton and Honiton, like Wakefield, was a leave voting constituency. So the suggestion is that being anti-conservative or being not the party of Boris Johnson weighs more heavily now on the voters than your position on Brexit. Indeed, and um, I think it's worth stating that several of the by-elections that uh, the Liberal Democrats have won in the past couple of years 
have all been leave voting seats and comfortably so, uh, as, as you suggest. And um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the polls around other issues that were attached to Brexit, associated with Brexit, primarily immigration. So the salience of immigration as a top issue among the electorate has sort of dive-bombed um, alongside, obviously, um, people's concern about the issues revolving directly from leaving the EU, you know, regulation, uh, etc. And so it's pretty clear that people aren't casting their ballot now because of the issue of Brexit. And I think the speculation was perhaps these voters would be thankful to Johnson and more loyal to him because he was the man who got it done. He was the man who delivered this great project. I think it's quite interesting, though, that the, the Get Brexit Done slogan was sort of said with a sigh. It was, I don't think it was a particularly inspiring message. It was like, oh, God, we've had, you know, years of prevarications over this subject. Won't somebody just get it over the line so we can forget about it? And that's exactly what voters have now done. They have forgotten about it, which I think is why Boris Johnson isn't seeing that uh, degree of loyalty and attachment um, because of Brexit. And obviously, Partygate plays a massive impact there as well. Um, voters just don't think they can trust the guy anymore. Yeah, so I suppose this then comes down to a debate about whether, whether with a different Conservative leader in Downing Street, Brexit might again be a polarising issue. It's clear, isn't it, whatever the outcome of that debate, that Boris Johnson, in a sense, is the most polarising influence on the electorate at the moment, outweighing Brexit by several factors, particularly mm. because of Partygate. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting, actually, to, to think about the other potential prime ministers. And you'd say Liz Truss is probably the most avowedly Brexiteer candidate that I can think of um, that's viable as a prime minister. But even she is not as closely associated with the Leave project as Boris Johnson is. So in the minds of the electorate, they've kind of got peak Brexit now with, with Johnson. I think what might end up happening, I think the salience of Brexit might return, but just within the Conservative Party. Um, if you had a leader like Jeremy Hunt, for example, who seems most likely, um, he's pretty, you know, he, he, he's, he's pretty moderate on the idea. I'm you know, pretty sure that he, he backed Remain, although he's not really said anything since... 2016 about Brexit one way or the other, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said, rather, except for just let's get it done. Um, but there will be lots of hardline Brexiteers in the Conservative Party who won't be, won't be so keen on that sort of style of leadership. And you can imagine uh, Lord Frost, for example, um, who, who led the negotiations over Brexit. You can imagine him being very vocal, trying to position himself um, as, as a, a cult Brexiteer who can bring back, uh, who, who can who can take back control of the Brexit mission, um, and we might end up Brexit might just end up becoming another um, Tory psychodrama, which is essentially what it's been for the past for the past decade anyway. Yeah, it's hard to see where the Conservatives go with this. Whether we move to an even harder Brexit as the years go by. I mean, we do have a trade agreement with the European Union, but we know that at the moment many businesses complain about the amount of red tape or whether another Conservative leader or perhaps Keir Starmer 
we'll be in a position to negotiate a kind of softer Brexit than we have at the moment. One, perhaps, that is rejoining in all but name that has no trade barriers and perhaps has free movement of people as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think Labour's, uh, Labour's a really interesting case on Brexit as well. It, it, it seems not to want to talk about the issue, um, which you can, you can understand to some extent. But also, I think that uh, we've done polling around this issue and lots of people think that Brexit is actually adding to the cost of living. So if Labour really wants to hammer the Conservatives on the key election issue of the day, um, Brexit is a part of that in the mind of voters. And as I say, people don't care about it with the same ferocity that they used to. So this might be an opportunity for Labour to be able to stake out a more um, moderate, sensible, um, constructive um, debate over Brexit, which would certainly be to its favour. And then I think ultimately, ironically, Labour might be the party to to get Brexit done and to get us all um, not talking about Brexit anymore. Because the Conservatives, as as I said earlier, the Conservatives like to use Brexit as a political tool because it plays well among certain demographics, certain, certain older socially conservative demographics. But Labour, you can feasibly see negotiating a closer arrangement between the EU and Northern Ireland and Great Britain. I don't think Labour would be bothered at all about um, having forging closer economic links with the European Union and all that that entailed, you know, mirroring regulations. Um, uh, a big a big cause of Brexiteers is to separate us from uh, the judicial aspects of the European Union. And you can't imagine Keir Starmer, um, you know, particularly given his legal background, you can't imagine him wanting to pursue that course. Um, so we may actually end up with a relative degree of Brexit harmony with Labour if it ever got in power. Um, though I, I do think that, that rejoining under Labour would be, a, you know, would be a very distant prospect. Yeah, I don't think there's much appetite amongst the Labour front bench for rejoining, certainly not from uh, Keir Starmer, but closer ties with the EU, an easier trade relationship and the restoration of free movement could all potentially be on the cards. These are the kind of issues, I suppose, that the Conservative right will seek to exploit, whether or not Boris Johnson is Prime Minister. But we'll hear shortly from Tony Sampson from the LSE, a respected economist. He'll spell out how Brexit has damaged the UK economy. And I just noticed from your most recent article in Byline Times, Sam, at bylinetimes.com, you referenced as well a report by the Resolution Foundation showing that one of the most avidly pro-Brexit areas of the UK is also one of the areas that's going to suffer most from it. Yeah, and and this is interesting. This is why I've always said that um, opposing Brexit is a principled stance that stands up for the left-behind regions of this country Um, because this Resolution Foundation report um, echoes plenty of previous reports by saying that the northeast is going to be hardest hit from Brexit because of its um, because of its association with exports to the continent. Um, plenty of other reports have pointed to car manufacturing in, in your part of the world, in the Midlands, um, and that 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 part of the country will be damaged as well. Um, whereas uh, London uh, is actually pretty flexible; it's it's light on its feet. Um, and it's coping relatively well compared to other regions um, with the impacts of Brexit. 
And so, yeah, this is a, this is a regional this is a regional question, and it's about ensuring that those parts of the country that have suffered uh, in recent decades don't go further back still um, due to the self sabotage of um, departing from from the EU. I know these matters mean a lot to you, Sam, as well. Uh, Sam has written an excellent book, Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital. Very well received and reviewed, and is a book we genuinely can recommend here at Byline Times. Sam, thank you very much indeed. This is Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Please take out a subscription if you can. You'll get a fantastic monthly newspaper in which you can read Sam and many other fine writers, and you'll also be funding the work of this podcast. Please go to bylinetimes.com for more details. Now, as promised, let's examine the economic impact of Brexit with Thomas Sampson. Thomas is an associate professor in the economics department at the LSE. There have, of course, been huge pressures bearing down on the global economy. The pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, to mention just two. So is it possible to isolate the specific impact of Brexit? That's a really good question. And as researchers, it's really what we spend a lot of our time thinking about, thinking about strategies that allow us to tease out what's Brexit versus what is all the other shocks that are hitting the economy. As you rightly point out, there have been a lot of shocks lately. And, you know, that makes our life a little bit more more difficult. But there are various strategies you can you can adopt. And I think overall, you know, we, there, there is enough information to separate these different effects. So when thinking about the kind of economic effects of Brexit and what we've seen so far, I think it's useful to break the period into break into two periods. Like firstly, what happened after the referendum, but before Brexit actually occurred, kind of between 2016 and 2021. And then what happened now? We have this new trade relationship with the with the EU. So we could talk about each of those in turn, if you like. Yeah, and that trade and cooperation agreement, commonly referred to as the TCA. So that's been existent in existence for how long? It came into effect at the start of 2021. So we're about a year and a half into the into the trade and cooperation agreement, the TCA now. Okay. So take us then through that first period before the TCA existed. I mean, if you think back to June 2016 when the referendum happened, the first thing we saw in terms of the economic effects was that the pound, the value of sterling, declined. There was a sudden depreciation of of the pound that mainly occurred on the night of the referendum itself. And, you know, essentially over the few days following the referendum, the pound lost about 10% of its value against other major currencies like the dollar and the euro. So, you know, why does that why does that matter? You know, obviously it's of interest to currency speculators, but that's not most of us. So why do we care if the pound falls? Well, it's because it drives up the cost of imported goods. If the pound is weaker, everything we buy from abroad becomes more expensive. So one piece of work I've done with my research team at LSE is to look at how the uh, price of consumer goods changed following that depreciation. And what we show is that the depreciation drove up the cost of imports, which led to significantly higher prices that consumers faced for their weekly weekly shop. And kind of our, our best estimate of the size of that effect is that the, the depreciation increased the cost of living by around 2.9%. Um, you know, what's 2.9%? How much is that? Well, for, for an average household in the UK, that's an increase of about £870 
on their annual shopping shopping bill. So it's you know it, it, that that's a fairly big hit that occurred in the two years after the referendum, even before there was a change in, in arrangement. So that that was kind of the first channel through which we saw uh, Brexit starting to have economic costs. And then there was one other big channel that we saw operating before the, tea, before the, the new trade arrangements came into effect. And that was that you know, all the uncertainty that was around about, you know, would Brexit take place at all? When would it take place? If it did take place, what would our new relationship with the EU look like? This uncertainty made it harder for businesses to plan for the future and this, you know, what, what, what this leads is, you know, when, when businesses are uncertain about what the future is, looks like, they tend to cut back on, on new investments, things like, you know, buying new machines, investing in new plants, because, you know, they're, they're not willing to commit to those big purchases if they don't know what the future is going to be looking like. So over the few years after the referendum, we saw a slowdown in investment, business investment in the, in the UK. And that meant that the economy grew uh, more slowly. Now, teasing out exactly the size of that effect is quite, is quite difficult. But you know, the kind of estimates we have are that maybe by, by the end of 2019, so before COVID hit, because obviously once COVID hit, that starts dominating GDP movements. But before the start of COVID, economists were thinking that the UK economy was maybe 2 to 3% smaller as a direct result of the the referendum vote. So that's, you know, it's not a catastrophe, but it's a, a substantial drag on growth that played out over, over several years and left, you know, left, left the size of the economy smaller, which means, you know, all of our incomes on average are going to be lower and government is going to have less money to spend, which puts pressure on government services. So even before, you know, Brexit actually happened, there are already these significant economic pressures that had started to emerge. And since the Trade and Cooperation Agreement then, the TCA, can we measure that impact? Yeah. So that, that, that's, that, that's kind of the key question now. And obviously, the additional challenge now when we think about the TCA is it you know, came into effect at the start of 2021. You know, and what that means, it came into effect at the same time as we were experiencing a big wave of, of, of COVID. And, you know, that was just following the Christmas lockdown that we had in the in the UK. So there's this challenge of, you know, when we look at changes in UK trade over the past two years, is it Brexit or is it COVID? Um, and, you know, both have clearly had, an, had effects on trade. The way we have tried to disentangle the two is to compare changes in the UK's trade with the EU to changes with other countries. So the basic idea there is that you know, COVID is, in a sense, a, a global shock. There is no obvious reason why we would expect COVID to hit the UK's trade with Germany or France more than it would the UK's trade with the US or Japan, whereas Brexit, obviously, is an EU-specific shock. So the, to the extent that we see changes in trade with the EU relative to non-EU countries, that gives us a way to disentangle uh, to disentangle these two effects and to be more confident that the effects we're estimating are actually Brexit rather than COVID. And what do they show then? What, do they, what does your research show? Yeah. So the first thing is that if you look at the start of 2021, when the new arrangements come into effect, there is very clearly a major disruption in UK-EU trade in the first quarter of 2021. Um, so on the 
on the import side, so looking at UK imports from the EU, we find that the TCA causes causes UK imports from the EU to fall by about 25%. And kind of, and you know, that that effect kicks in very quickly. So it's a very rapid, large drop. You know, and as someone who spent a lot of my a lot of my life looking at trade data, you don't typically see movements of that size in the data. So it, you know, it really stands out as whoa something happened to trade here. And obviously the thing that happened is we're moving to these new trade arrangements. So imports from the EU fall around a quarter and that has been persistent ever since then. So it's kind of this sharp drop and that, that has persisted. Um, the export side is a, a little more, a, a kind of a little more surprising in some ways in that you do see on the export side that there was initially a decline in the value of UK exports to the EU. But then there's actually quite a strong bounce back. Um, and if you look at data for the second half of 2021, we don't see any decline in the value of UK exports to the EU relative to non-EU exports. So kind of you know, looking, at, looking at values of trade, our results are showing that so far the main effect has actually been on, on imports rather than exports, which is you know, it's not what we expected to find when we started this work. So it is a little surprising. In terms of exports, then, given that we are essentially an exporting nation, or at least we like to think of ourselves as mm. one, is that effectively a neutral impact then from Brexit? Yeah, that, that, that's a really important question. Um, now, I think and then there's sort of a couple of important sort of caveats to what I've said so far. One is that all the work we've done so far has been for goods exports rather than services exports and you know that's simply the case that we get the, the goods export data a bit quicker so we you know we're able to turn around the analysis faster so there's there's kind of an outstanding question of you know what's happened to services exports things like financial services uh business services which are traditional strengths of the uk economy we haven't we haven't looked at that yet um but then you know the other important point is although we see you know what i think you kind of correctly term as almost a neutral result when we look at the value of exports. Once we start to dig into the data a little bit more and kind of look under the, un, under the hood of what's going on with exports, there's clearly a big disruption going on. And it, it, it would be a mistake to think from our results that uh, the TCA hasn't affected exports at all. It's just kind of, it, it's affected it in a slightly different way. And so, you know, let me try and unpack what I mean by that. I think it's interesting. <laughs> which is if instead of looking at the value of exports, we look at measures of kind of the number of exporters from the UK to the EU, right? So the, the simplest way to do this would be simply, you know, count the number of firms that are exporting to the EU. Now, we'd like to do that, but we don't have that data uh, yet. It should become available uh, maybe later this, this year. So we can't count the number of firms, but what we can count are the number of products that the UK exports to different EU countries. And the nice thing here is that trade data goes into a lot of detail when talking about products. So, you know, there are about 10,000 different products that we observe trade for. Um, to give one example, you know, one of, one of the products in our data set is uh, umbrellas with telescopic handles, not including toy umbrellas. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty detailed product. We're not talking just cars or toys. We're talking yeah. at a very detailed level. We observe what's getting exported. 
So when we when we look at this kind of when we look at the we call it the number of trade relationships, which is the number of products exported to different EU countries. There we see that when the the new arrangement comes into effect, there is a sharp drop in the number of trade relationships. So that then immediately poses the question: Well, if the number of relationships falls, but the number of ex but the value of exports is kind of steady, you know that almost seems inconsistent. So what explains that discrepancy? Well, what seems to have happened is that larger exporters, so kind of large firms, which are the ones that do most of exports by value, have been able to absorb the new costs under the TCA, right? So the, the, the TCA creates lots of new red tape, lots of new bureaucracy you have to go through, lots of additional costs for firms. Large firms seem to have found that you know, it's worth paying these costs and continuing to export. Right? And because of that, the value of exports seems to have held up. Where smaller firms, or when, you know, there's lots of them, but they're, you know, they're less important on average than large firms. For smaller firms that sell, you know, sell less to EU markets, paying these fixed costs of accessing the market that the new arrangements create doesn't seem to have been worth it. And you know, what our results suggest is that smaller firms have kind of exited EU markets in droves and that that's where we're seeing the negative effect on exports uh, so far. Yeah, and obviously there's a degree of supposition about this because of the nature of the data, but it would suggest, wouldn't it, that small and medium-sized firms then are exporting less to the EU. That would be a fair conclusion. That's correct. Yeah, that's kind of our, our as you say, our supposition based on the data we have currently, and, and you're totally correct to point out that, you know, we need to be careful about that at this stage because we don't have the actual firm level data to confirm that hypothesis. But you know, what, one thing that's on our agenda for when we do get the firm level data will be to check whether this is indeed the, indeed the case. But you know, obviously, it's kind of what the data suggests that we have at the moment, and it's kind of consistent with a lot of the reporting that has been gone around, on around this issue showing the, the, deep, the problems that specific firms have been have been facing because of the new trade barriers. Yeah, I mean, we spoke to one exporter a while ago on the podcast detailing the exhaustive red tape that they have to go through, the red tape, which, of course, the government said it was quitting the EU to remove, but which has added an extra barrier to those who want to export to the European Union. And there is, within the UK, one outlier, which is Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland is a political issue in many respects, because we have a de facto border down the Irish Sea, which means that Northern Ireland, for trading purposes, effectively remains within the EU or remains within the single market to all intents and purposes. And it is the one part of the UK that has improved its economic performance. Can we say that that is down to it remaining within the single market? I think it's too soon to kind of be definitive about that, but there, I mean, there are certainly good reasons to think why the the protocol, the Northern Ireland protocol, the fact that it does keep Northern Ireland effectively within the single market, is advantageous for the Northern Irish economy. So, you know, to give what my, my favourite example of this is, you know, the the UK has traditionally been a big recipient of foreign investment, and part of the reason firms from, say, the United States like to invest in the UK is that they can use it as a 
uh, as a platform from which to serve European markets. That was the benefit of the single market. You set up in the UK and then you have free access to this huge European market. Um, now, obviously, for, for excluding Northern Ireland, the UK has lost that. And that's a concern for what's going to happen with investment coming into the UK. But suppose now you're a US firm thinking about investing in Europe. Um, and maybe, you know, you would still ideally have liked to invest in the UK. It's, it's English speaking. There are strong ties between the UK and the US. We have a highly skilled workforce. We have a lot of cultural similarities with the US. Uh, but if you invest in Britain now, you don't have that single market access. But there is this alternative. Let's go to Northern Ireland. We invest in Northern Ireland and you get access to both the single market and the rest of uh, the rest of Britain. So you know, I think we'll have to kind of leave a little bit more time to be totally clear on what effect this is going to have economically. But there are certainly some advantages to the Northern Ireland Protocol for, for Irish businesses. And I think that's why the, you know, the complaints about the protocol have been mainly coming from politicians within the Conservative Party, not from the businesses in Northern Ireland themselves who appreciate uh, you know, that there are some benefits to being in the single market. Whether from your own research or that of other economists, is there any identifiable economic benefits to leading the EU? On aggregate, I think there hasn't, we are yet to see any evidence of benefits. Now, for particular firms or industries, there may be some benefits. So, for example, if you were, you know, if you were working in a firm that previously faced a lot of competition from other EU firms, from imports from the EU, and now it's been harder to get harder to access those imports. That might benefit that particular firm or that that industry. So, you know, changes in trade. Typically, we always that's what I always tell my students. Any change in trade policy, there will be some winners and some some losers. And I think that will be with the case for Brexit, though we haven't really identified the winners yet. Uh, but certainly, on, on aggregate, if we sum up across everyone, I haven't really seen anyone kind of make a strong case that for for benefits so far. Thomas Sampson there from the LSC. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well to check out the Bylines app on your smartphone, opening up the world of our regional bylines as well. Thanks very much indeed for listening. See you next time.